Good morning. Man, I feel like I got hit by a lightning bolt of energy with that. Thank you, Liz. I am awake now. Good morning. Um, welcome to the Vancouver Vineyard Church. If you're new, my name's Jace, one of the pastors here. And we are just moving right along through our new sermon series. Um, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. We're calling this um, sermon series The Good Life. And the goal is to explore Jesus' teachings found in this sermon um, where we really see him just casting vision um, for what it looks like to live underneath the reign of God. And in a lot of ways, this is a contrast to our previous sermon series, which we called The Vandalism of Shalom. Um, okay, so what we need to do first is just read the passage that we're going to tackle. So if you have your Bible, you can turn open to Matthew 5. Um, we're in uh, verse 17. I'm going to tackle 17 through 20. So I'm just going to read it all the way through, and then we'll go in a little bit deeper. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, they'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't know how you're feeling right now about the kingdom of heaven and your place in it. Um, I'm just going to read the last sentence again, in case you missed it. For I'm telling you right now, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There's that. And just a reminder, that little line, um, that comes at the beginning of the same sermon, um, which includes this little bit in 548. Um, hopefully you can see this. You therefore must be perfect. As your heavenly father's perfect. All right. So I'm going to take a wild guess and assume um, that I'm not the only one who's read these words and felt the like tiny tickle in your stomach. You're like, yikes. Um, and so here's my question. What exactly is Jesus's expectation? Why, what is he asking people to do in this sermon? Because he says it. He just says that. And or on a very basic level, what does this text mean? What does it mean? Um, so let's just situate it in context, yeah? Good Bible students. First of all, in the Gospel of Matthew, we've just watched um, as Jesus has dawned on the scene like a morning sunrise. Um, this is how, that's how Matthew paints the picture. So go back and look at how he quotes the prophet Isaiah in the previous chapter. He says, For those dwelling in the region, in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus begin to preach. So Jesus is likened to a sunrise. And what does that sunrise look like? Well, Jesus is walking around saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven's at hand. So Jesus is lighting people up with a little bit of heaven. And everywhere he goes, he brings that glorious kingdom to bear with the touch of his hands and the words of his mouth. And then all of those affected by that ministry, those whose shadowy lives are being illuminated and renewed, they now come to gather on this mountain where Jesus starts to teach. Matthew calls this the Sermon on the Mount. He opens up with this monumental pronouncement 
of who is blessed in God's kingdom. And it's the least of these, as Matthew's been showing. It's, those, um, it's all, those, uh, um, all of those people that are sitting there were the ones who got hit with that sunrise, and then they like, want to come sit at the mountain. So, of course, so that's the beginning of the context. Following the sermon, um, if you zoom ahead, you'll find Matthew's little description where he concludes the sermon. And this is what he says in 728. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowd was astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching as one who had authority, not, not like the scribes. So just sit with this statement for a second. The entire sermon is presented by Matthew as something which was very unique in terms of authority that the speaker held. Um, and now if you go back to our verse, 517, and just look ahead a couple sentences, you'll see how that authority is sprinkled in. Watch what, um, we're about to move into, so not me, next week, we're about to move into the section of the sermon where Jesus uses that formulaic phrase, you heard that it was said, well, I'm telling you. You heard that it was said, don't murder, I'm telling you, don't have anger. You don't, you've heard that it said, don't commit adultery. Well, I'm saying don't, don't even lust. It's as good as the deed. So the whole sermon is like this. Jesus authoritatively teaches, and he says, I say, um, in contrast to what they've heard in the past. <clears throat> so here's what I want to focus on for a second. When Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you heard it said, to whom or to what is he referring? You guys know, this is the... Um, the Old Testament, law, their Bibles, the Hebrew Bible, their Old Testament. Um, so G what, is, what is Jesus saying then? You've read the Bible while well, I'm telling you this. So George Eldon Ladd, brilliant New Testament theologian, says this. Therefore, <laughs> Jesus assumed an authority equal to that of the Old Testament. The character of his preaching stands in sharp contrast to the rabbinic method, which relied upon the authority of earlier rabbis. This teacher said this, and this teacher said that. His preaching does not even follow the, for, the prophetic formulation, thus saith the Lord. He doesn't even sound like an Old Testament prophet. Rather, his message is just grounded in his own authority and is repeatedly introduced by the words, well, I'm telling you. <laughs> so don't just pass this reality by. This is very significant. It's supposed to shock us a little bit. How could Jesus claim equal authority with the scriptures? The sacred text, the Hebrew Bible, it was everything for the Jewish people, especially for the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus puts himself on equal ground with it, and he says, yep, I fulfill it, and now I'm telling you. So what's interesting, okay, so that was that context. What's interesting, though, is that over time, those statements of Jesus have been the subject of all sorts of interpretation of the Old Testament within the Christian church. Christians, we do all sorts of weird things with the Bible. <laughs> Here's one of the examples. Um, though things are changing in many ways, praise God, a lot of us have inherited a way of interpreting Jesus' words that goes something like this. Well, Jesus came. We don't need the law anymore. It's by grace we're saved. By golly. And maybe that just feels familiar to some of you. It's Christianity in a nutshell. Um, and at its core, here's the thing, at the core, there's an absolute, there's the absolute truth is in there, <laughs> uh, I think. We follow Jesus, the Messiah, as beneficiaries of the new covenant which he ushered in. We are, yes and amen, saved by Jesus' grace. It's a gift of salvation. 
Um, insert every other Christianese cliche that you grew up with there, okay? And they're all true and good. There's a reason why they're cliches, because they're right. But when we do that so fast, um, and we turn our brains off, and we kick up our feet, and we just say, gosh, thanks, God, for that grace. I don't have to follow the law. We rob ourselves of a richer reading of what's going on here. In that caricature I just sketched, the one of the Christian who says, thanks for grace, now I'll be on my way without so much as a glance at the Old Testament and the law, I think there's an unintended consequence. If our theological categories lead us to say, phew, glad we don't need that Old Testament law anymore, then what we're coming very close to saying is Christ abolished that thing, rather than what Jesus himself said, which is, I'm not abolishing it, I'm fulfilling it. In other words, Jesus clearly thought very highly of his Bible, so much so that every word which came out of his mouth, every decision that he made, every sermon preached, miracle performed, judgment executed, all of it was shaped and informed by the scriptures he grew up with. Jesus did not intend for us to be rid of it. He just said so. He intended for us to see it as fulfilled. He apparently placed a high value on the expectations found within the Old Testament law. So, We're right back to that frightening little phrase that we read at the beginning, which is, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the question is, are you appreciating the weight of that? (laughs) Um, To be clear, Jesus is calling for an excess of righteousness as a kingdom qualification. And what's the measuring rod he's using? Apparently... According to Jesus, there's a quick little invitation here to just look at the scribes and the Pharisees, who, by the way, were not just interested in righteousness, they're obsessed with it. So Pharisees, these are the guys who were trying with all of their might to make the new covenant happen by finally restoring holiness to the corrupt land of Israel. Who were the Pharisees? They want to see revival, to see all of Israel be righteous so God could finally just be ushered onto the scene as the proper king of Israel. And the only reason he hadn't come yet, the only reason for the brutal exile of Israel's past was because Israel had gotten in bed with the sinful practices of the other nations, read your prophets, refused to shape up, refused to be holy, and refused to be righteous. So the Pharisees were these Torah churchmen calling for reform, for people to shape up. Their nation just wasn't what it used to be, and we need to get a grip And people need to put on their Sunday or Saturday best and start practicing a little bit of holiness or God's never going to come back. This was the attitude of the Pharisees. Now, most of us are familiar with how the story goes in the Gospels. Jesus is going to reserve his harshest words, his strongest critiques, his most cutting language um, for the scribes and the Pharisees. He takes issue with the religious. But it is worth noting here that Jesus very strategically, he's a brilliant teacher, he can do both. He very strategically holds them up as a picture of what obedience and righteousness look like. Just fascinating. The people that will be his enemies are right now his example. Um, Why does he do that? Well, when he does, (laughs) you can almost hear the crowd gulp. Like that. Jesus is an effective teacher. He knows how to strike people's minds and hearts like lightning, like like that announcement from Liz. We're just like, whoa, I'm going to give food. (laughs) Paralyzing them in their seats and utterly just like seizing their attention. Because not only does he say they need to be righteous, 
Not only does he say they need to be righteous like the Pharisees, something which they know they will never achieve, he says something far worse, something way more horrifying. Your righteousness actually needs to be way better. It needs to exceed that. So what do we do? And maybe you felt this when you've read the Sermon on the Mount, exceed their righteousness, be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect, gouge out my eye if I lust, snowball's chance. And yet we see in Jesus something utterly enchanting, an impossible righteousness suddenly possible. And we can't look away. These, this crowd could not look away. It was like looking at a clear sunrise. It was beautiful. <clears throat> Remember, Jesus' light is like that morning light, that sunrise that's dawning on the cold night of exile and oppression and that agonizing wait for God to show up. And that light is warm and it's full of power and it's actually taking root inside of these people's lives. So we have this man who's now gathered all of these people he's touched and impacted, the island of misfit toys, the mutants at table nine. And after having shown the light of heaven on them, he, changing them forever, he just begins to teach them on this mountain. And the point is, here's the point I'm trying to make. They've already bought in. They're there. They're curious. They see in Jesus, whether they've put words to it or not, a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They've been touched by it, healed by it. All around them, the lilies of the field are swaying in a new kind of breeze. And a deep hunger is growing inside of them. They want more. That's why they're there. And for the first time in their lives, they sense it might actually be theirs for the taking. So it all comes down to this one mysterious, both enigmatic and horrifying, and yet tantalizingly beautiful phrase which Jesus utters. We'll take it in two parts because it deserves that. The first part, he says, almost in passing, and yet every word rumbles with eternal terrifying weight, he says this, I have not come to abolish the law. Stop. Do you get it? This is the first part, the part that tells the listeners that the weight they feel in their gut, the convicting one, the one that says you're broken, the world is broken, and you've broken the law, the first half confirms to them that the weight they feel is legit. Because you can imagine a scenario where they started following this guy around and they started saying to themselves, maybe this Jesus guy, maybe he's gonna abolish the law. Maybe we have a fighting chance or something. Nope, Jesus will not give them that. They tremble with the truth that God does, in fact, mean it when he says, you shall be holy. Next slide. These are both quotes from the Old Testament. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And you shall be perfect before the Lord your God. Old Testament expectations. Lad says this, Jesus taught the pure, unconditioned will of God without compromise of any sort, which God lays upon human beings at all time and for all time. Such conduct is actually attainable only in the age to come, when all evil has been banished. But it is quite clear from the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus expects his disciples to practice his teachings in this present age. Read the Sermon on the Mount. He wasn't mystical about it. He was very clear. Just start doing it. Otherwise, the sayings about the light of the world, <laughs> the salts of the earth, they're meaningless. Jesus' ethics embodied the standard of righteousness that the holy God must demand of women and men in any age. In other words, you guys, there is a standard of living 
when heaven and earth are fully reunited and God reigns over all in his eternal kingdom. The HOA fee is astronomically high. It's like nothing short of absolute perfection. Total shalom without the smallest trace of vandalism. That's how you'll know God's reign has been fully realized. So Jesus does not spare them the gut punch. However, he does follow it up with the mysterious second half, which sounds like birdsong in their ears and reminds them that they are indeed staring at the first light of spring which has dawned on the shadow of death. I have not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Um, next slide. Somehow, in Jesus, something entirely new is breaking in and a new path is being paved. <clears throat> so all of this just forces us to consider, and you have to consider these questions before you move into the sermon, but it just, it, here, here it is. What does it mean <laughs> that Jesus fulfills the law? And what exactly is the law in the first place that it requires fulfillment? What are we even talking about? Clearly, Jesus sees himself as just stepping into a larger story, a cohesive narrative, which has been unraveling for millennia, and his whole life's purpose is wrapped up inside of that story. He's very confident about this. So let's just talk about the word law for a second. In Greek, it's the word nomos, um, but that Greek word finds its meaning in the Greek translation of the, of the Old Testament. So nomos is just a translation of a Hebrew concept which has already enjoyed rich development in the Hebrew scriptures. There are several, um, there are actually several Hebrew words for laws and statutes and regulations, etc. But the dominant Hebrew word beneath all of these, which you'll probably recognize, um, is the word Torah. Mm. Now, Torah is very versatile, um, but at its core, it means to instruct and to show, to, to reveal in some capacity. So when God speaks in the Old Testament and he gives a direct command, thou shalt or thou shalt not, whatever, you can, you can call that Torah. But Torah itself also gets at the idea of just showing someone something or instructing them. And so this is why the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're called as a shorthand by the Jewish people and certainly as, by Jesus during his day as the, your Torah. So your first five books. Um, and then that actually became a shorthand for the Old Testament as well. But first five books, they're the core of God's revealing and guiding, his teaching and instructing. But if you go back, and you read Genesis through Deuteronomy, you'll discover that what the Jewish people called their Torah includes much more than strict Torah or law, as we might call it. There's more in those books than, in other words, there's more in those books than legal expectation. What the Torah is, fundamentally, is a story. Now, the story develops to include those laws along the way, but all of those are situated within the story to function as part of the developing plot. And so what is the story? <laughs> Ready? One minute recap, according to the Torah. <clears throat> God created a good and beautiful world. And it was his delight to rule over that world, ruling meaning the act of teasing out life and creating a world that is set up for the flourishing of that life. It was his delight to, to, to rule that world um, by creating these co-rulers, these co-creators called hum humans. Humans is how he wanted to do the ruling. Um, but things go horribly wrong when humans, after coming under the deception of that dark voice there at the beginning, begin to suspect God of treachery. To trust him would be too risky to their own aims for glory and wisdom, and so they betray their partnership. 
Now, what's interesting about this betrayal is that it's told within the image of that forbidden tree, that strange little tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember that? All the world, for all the world to see, um, apparently, that tree, when you ate it, involved knowing good from evil. Now, if you keep reading your Torah, <laughs> you'll discover, probably sooner than later, that the ability to discern between good and evil is, in fact, a very good thing. Humans desperately need that ability. It'll be developed later by the biblical authors as that fully fleshed out portrait which the Bible calls wisdom. When one fears the Lord, the Jewish writers will say one is filled with wisdom that they, then now, they know then how to weigh out good and evil. So the garden scene then is a picture of naivete and innocence. Here's a wisdom tree, God says, but then he says something profound. Don't just take it. Not a good idea. In other words, don't start deciding what you think is good and evil on your own volition. This is a partnership. Stay connected to me. It's the fear of the Lord. Turns out when humans start making judgment calls about what's good and what's evil at first bite, they end up doing the opposite. That which they think is really good is what kills them, and that which they think brings them life, sorry, and that which actually brings them life, they reject. We go for the Snickers over the broccoli every time. So the scene is maddeningly simple and yet eternally profound. Rather than trusting God to teach and give them wisdom in time, humans make a grab for it apart from God, and the result is catastrophic. The Torah tells the story of what it looked, I said this is going to be a one-minute recap. We're going on four. Hang with me. The Torah tells the story of what it looks like when humans find themselves separated from God, their very source of life, now deciding good and evil for themselves. They begin to die and not just die. They are corrupted and they impart into the world their corruption because they live in a dying land and a poisoned environment. And because of that, they have to start getting scrappy and more selfish even to the point of harming one another. The Torah tells the story of humanity no longer partnered with the author of life, instead now partnering with the serpent of death, which ironically they think is good and wise. The first story of the garden, sorry, the first story out of the garden is a story of murder. It's pretty clear. Cain thinks it's a good idea. He'll fix his problems if he just kills his brother. But God is committed to this partnership and he sets off to redeem the world, so he tells so, sorry, so the Torah tells the story of his pursuit of a single family to grow into a larger family, which should somehow be the conduits of the original garden blessing back out to the whole world. So later this family grows into a nation. We call this nation Israel, which ends up in slavery down in Egypt. And don't miss this. Humans have so partnered with the serpent that the author of Exodus tells you explicitly in chapter one that Pharaoh genuinely thought he was making a wise decision when he pulled the trigger on enslaving another people group. For Pharaoh, these people were pawns to his larger game of national security and economic boom, which, according to him, was the ultimate good. And so it was wise. The, most of your translations will say shrewd. It's the word for wisdom. It was wise for him to enslave them to further his own cause. But God delivers them through a mighty display of power, and he brings Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai. And here, the Torah tells us that they receive Torah. You're all familiar with the Ten Commandments, which come first, and then, of course, <laughs> the 603, which explode out of those. So what is happening here? If you zoom out and you look at the story as a whole, you really see a cohesive narrative at work. God is on, the mission, is on a mission to co-rule 
with a matured humanity that rules wisely in his image. That's always been the agenda. But they need to become actually, like actually wise to do that, not just wise in their own eyes. How? Well, they have to be Torah. <laughs> they have to be showed. It has to be revealed in some capacity. Um, so it has to be shown to them and taught to them, but they can't just take it. So what's interesting is that after Israel receives the Torah, the larger story tells us that Moses, their leader, he holds it up, holds up the actual Torah before them in the book of Deuteronomy, and watch what he says. This is um, Deuteronomy 4. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, other words inside the Torah language, as the, as the Lord commanded me, that you should go and do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. So here's the thing. Keep them. Do them. They will be your what? Your wisdom, your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear these statutes, all these people are going to say, golly, look at this great nation, so wise in understanding. What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call on him? And what a great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous that all this law that I, as all this law that I've set before you today, so I don't know if you caught it, but what does the law, the Torah, do? If they obey, if they internalize the words, meditate on them, as Joshua and the psalmist is going to say, it will produce in them wisdom that is tried and true. It will be at last the thing that draws the nations, the rest of the world. So here we have it, the Torah of God, meaning the laws, in the context of the Torah of God, that is the story, reveals the wisdom of God, which humans are to step into and fulfill. And if they do, blessing is unleashed to the world. It's the, the idea. But we know the story. How does Israel do? The truth is, there is a corruption residing within the human heart that, they, that just can't be shaken. And God is aware of this. But like we already mentioned, here's, like we already mentioned, God will not change the nature of his kingdom. He will not suddenly make the standard of the garden one with toxic gases just to accommodate humans who inhale and exhale fumes of death. The law is put forth. The story is clear. God and his garden kingdom is a place of uncompromising beauty and perfection and goodness and flourishing. That story and his law must be told. Humans must see what God is like and understand why in their current state they don't belong in that garden. I have not come to abolish the law, Jesus says. Something else has to change. So now we come to it, second part, this word fulfill. Fulfill um, is the Greek word plerao, and at its core, it's a spatial, spatial word. Um, which just concerns like physically occupying space, like water fills up a cup. You can read um, in Matthew 13, their fishing nets are plerao'd up with fish. Or in Acts 2, the house is plerao'd with the Holy Spirit. It's like, you can see it's like a container. Um, but the word is really like harnessed by the authors to bear like a, a nuanced sort of theological weight, and it, which leans on it as a metaphor. So We've already seen it. Matthew uses it in a formulaic way at the beginning. You already saw it um, in your, um, this quote by Isaiah, the light dawning in the dark valley. Um, next slide. Um, Matthew 4, 14 says, this was to fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah. See that? So how are, how are we to understand that? 
It's as if the prophet Isaiah, in his poetic works centuries before, constructed like this beautiful vessel, and the shape of the vessel was like the shape of a dark valley with light. Put on your poetic goggles right now. And somehow, even in his own day, those words he wrote were filled up in some capacity. Um, But Matthew sees his words as a vessel waiting to be like fully filled up. And so their truest and most realized purpose is finally showcased. And we, so we might translate it something like, this was to see the full, completed realization of the words of this prophet. <laughs> but that's lame. No one wants to read that. So when we arrive at our passage for today, Matthew has Jesus really nuancing it even further, but definitely in a related sort of way. In 517, here the law is the law, not a prophecy, but the law is fulfilled. The idea seems to be that both the Torah, the story of God, and the Torah, the law of God, the meaning and purpose of all that God has been Torahing or, in, or instructing his people thus far with, its essence, its core, um, its fundamental nature, it's not being done away with. It's being filled up, completed. Somehow it's being fully realized. So this is pretty crucial because Jesus' view of his Old Testament is that it's good. It's been sketching out a plot that's finally ready for a character who can at last do what the main character was always meant to do. In his mind, the Old Testament does not describe a crazy, angry God, which some forms of Christianity have done, have taken it to mean. It's not bad cop to Jesus' good cop. It doesn't describe a bunch of laws that are just irrelevant or something. In his mind, clearly, the Old Testament is a container, which he sees himself as like perfectly filling up. Later on, Jesus is going to say something which will have seismic activity in the lives of his followers, so so much so that we're still wrestling with this today, as we should. Read with me what he says um, later on in the Gospel of Matthew. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. Shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So they're saying, your entire Old Testament just hangs on these two. Bold, authoritative move. What just happened there? For paying attention then we see that Jesus read his Old Testament so closely, he discovered the true shape of the vessel. He figured it out. He like cracked the code or something. He discovered the core essence of the Torah. He discovered true wisdom within all the laws and all the stories that the heartbeat of this whole thing is the fiery, burning reality of the love of God. For God so loved the world, John's gonna say. He's ushering people back into this life that loves him so that they can finally love their neighbors yourself. No more killing Cain outside of the garden. Or, sorry, killing Abel, excuse me. So Paul, Apostle Paul, student of the Torah, and ultimately of his true rabbi, Jesus, he says this, for the whole law is filled up, fulfilled in one word. Shall love your neighbor as yourself. He was an expert in those 613 commands. That's what he said, just so simply. So let us ponder afresh Jesus' words then. After saying he's come to fulfill the law, that is, become the true human 
who is wise by loving and fearing the Lord and loving his neighbor after, as himself. He says that, um, he finally says that sentence we started with. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're never gonna enter the kingdom of heaven. That's when he says that. So here's the question. What kind of righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Jesus wants them to understand that they need nothing less than the righteousness of God and the righteousness of God's kingdom. That's this standard. <laughs> um, to let all this sink and to pull all these pieces together, I want to do an illustration right now. It's always fun. Um, so next slide. Hopefully you know who this is. Look at that hair. <laughs> um, Ludwig von Beethoven was a German composer and pianist whose uh, musical career stretched from late 1700s into the early 1800s. Music historians um, break up Beethoven's career into sort of the early, middle, and the late periods. And it was during the early and middle periods where Beethoven was really honing the craft of music and gaining traction. He was becoming a master of music, um, especially during that early and middle period so that, um, sorry, especially during that middle period because during the early because during the middle, he could finally start distinguishing himself um, from the likes of um, Joseph Haydn and Mozart, um, who were just the virtuoso giants who came before him. Even if you don't know their music, you probably recognize those names. So now Mozart and Haydn, they composed in what's called the classical style, which is confusing because when you think of Beethoven, you think he was classical. It's a more technical term. But by the time Beethoven came onto the scene in his late period, late period of his career, he was on the map as like an edgy artist the mad, like, punk rock scientist of music who was experimenting with melody and the overarching structure of the symphony in, like, unsettling ways. It cracks me up what people got upset over, but we do the same thing today. They, um, he was both captivating and irritating people with the way he would just harp on the same notes and chords. So in contrast to Mozart, who was, like, a master of, like, the floating, beautiful melodies, you can, when you listen to Mozart, you'll just hear it. It's just like, it's all over the place. Beethoven refused to give people those light melodic lifts they were wanting, and he instead gave them bum, 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 and he would just hold it. Everyone's like, what is this? <laughs> um, and for us, it's like, oh, it's classical music. It all sounds the same. No, not at all. He was breaking the rules. He was changing the world of Western music. And even within his own time, people would come to see how truly avant-garde he was, but not at first. Um, but a tragedy struck, um, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with, which is that towards the tail end of the middle period and then the late period, Beethoven, the musician extraordinaire, um, was losing his hearing. He was going deaf. And it was during that period where Beethoven began writing his final masterpiece, the Ninth Symphony. It's funny, even if you cannot right now identify in your head any particular melodies or musical motifs of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, my hunch is the phrase, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is familiar to you. You've heard someone say that at some point in your life. It's regarded as one of the supreme achievements in the history of music. And still to this day, it stands as one of the most frequently played pieces of music throughout the world. Now, there are all sorts of things that set the Ninth apart. We can't go into all of them. I'm still learning about it. But one of them is that it was one of the first examples of a major composition to use a chorus, human voice, in the context of the symphony. Beethoven's Ninth then was, was and is still like a triumph in musical composition where it harnessed and incorporated the best 
of the time. So when the ninth made its debut in Vienna on May 7th, 1824, that anniversary is coming up, by the way. Next Saturday, you should all play the ninth. On, right on your calendars, I am, on the seventh. Play the ninth. Um, Beethoven was completely deaf. And he had been for a while. He could not conduct the, his own symphony. So he sat on the side to um, sort of co-conduct while he gave the, the job to um, a conductor named Michael Umlauf. He got the job done. And man, eyewitness testimonies will just bring you to tears. They did me. While his symphony just exploded in the room, um, falling on audiences' ears like some sort of divine revelation, Beethoven stood off to the side, his head buried in his own sheet music, conducting the muted orchestra nonetheless, wishing with every fiber of his being that he might just hear the masterpiece. Um, some recalled that when the symphony ended, and the audience roared with applause, he was still conducting, head down, and he had to be touched on the shoulder so that he knew it was actually over, and he was just really off on his timing. He was reading his sheet music. The crowd threw handkerchiefs. Um, they did like visual displays, because the clapping wasn't landing, just to show their approval of what had happened. Here's where all this is going. When Beethoven wrote the lion's share, of the Ninth Symphony, most historians agree he couldn't actually hear it. His ears never confirmed the sounds of the musical notation he was putting on the page. <laughs> so here's my question. How on earth does someone do that? How is that possible? How do you write music when you can't hear it? What does it take? We have access to manuscripts, of Beethoven's sheet music, look at this. You can see here, if you look closely, you can see the agony, the madness. You can see scribbles. Um, this is the work of a man who had all the variables and was so well acquainted with the law of music, but who with each scribble, with each crumpled up piece of paper tossed off to the side was longing to just see it come to life, to see it realized, to see it fulfilled. So here's what we're gonna do. <clears throat> we're going to listen to one minute of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. You're welcome. And for some of you, this is the first time you've listened to classical music in a while, or it's not your jam. <laughs> Literally, that's fine. Whatever. There's no pressure actually right now to feel anything. I understand it's not everyone's cup of tea, but my request is that all of us, is that at you, as you listen, I want you to appreciate the fact that on May 7th, 1824, a world-changing piece of music debuted, a piece of music written by a man without the ability to hear. Let's go for it.
Oh my gosh. Oh. All right. Illustration over. How did he do it? Um, you guys, the Ninth Symphony, it's musical law fulfilled. It's the beautiful art. It's the wise fruition. It's the true realization of what came from memorizing all those major minor scales in his childhood. From endlessly practicing theory and technique, it's something alive coming out of decades of corpse-like chords and intervals and rests and counting and crescendos and decrescendos that are just ingrained in his psyche. The only reason the ninth was possible was because Ludwig von Beethoven was so, so deeply understood the essence of music. He understood scales and intervals and tempo and instrumentation and music theory so well that its purpose to make something beautiful, which we call music, was just fully realized. Music is all the theory fully grown up, fully realized, fully fulfilled. That does not make the theory bad. Beethoven did not come to abolish music theory. <laughs> the Ninth Symphony is Jesus. It's a, his ministry was poetry. His life was stunning. It was, and it was in perfect harmony with the will of the Father. He was the perfect human ruler and God with us who fulfilled the law in beautiful um, love with every word he said, every act of service and power he performed, every prayer he prayed. And all of that was, only, was possible in and through the God-man Jesus. It was possible only in him first who stands out as this unique human apart from all of us. However, Jesus is the first to tell you, I learned it from my Bible. I've been meditating on Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. I know the shape of God's heart. It's love. It's right here in the pages of scripture. It has been all along. So where does that leave us today? Um, well, the sermon series is all about hearing from Jesus once again, what it's like in God's kingdom. What does it actually look like to live according to, according to God, the good life? We're actively placing ourselves at the foot of the mountain of Jesus, the new and greater Moses, um, who stands up there giving us his Torah, opening his mouth to utter the words, you've heard it said while I'm saying. We sit at Jesus' feet because both in his godly, in every sense of the word, authoritative life and teachings, we see the Torah fulfilled. And it's sheer perfection, completion. It's utterly unique, God-breathed. And so we recognize that to fulfill the Torah ourselves, to even read the Old Testament and understand it in the way we ought to, we need to be given a gift. We need the gift of Jesus. We need his spirit. Um, so you guys can go ahead and stand. Marshall, if you want to come forward. Prayer team, if you want to come forward. I'll just close with this. Um, according to Jesus, we are called to take up the mantle as these little lights, as the salt of the earth. We're invited to actually make, here's the thing, we are called to make music now in the kingdom. But how do we do that? Well, we require, as Matthew told us in chapter four, before the sermon began, true light to shine on us. We must first marvel at the God-man, Jesus, as he performs the symphony we never could on our behalf, as he fulfills the law we were always meant to, and then now gifted with the righteousness that exceeds the scribes of Pharisees, the righteousness of God. In, our, in freedom, we now come back underneath the Torah of all of Scripture. That is the story and the wisdom and the heart and the story and the soul, and we find that which has always been there, this love peace. <laughs> So the sermon series is not going to be about how you're not living up to Jesus' teachings, even though it might feel like that, right, when you start to read it. It's going to be in contrast um, to our last sermon series, The Vandalism of Shalom, about what it looks like to live the good, true, and beautiful life. Um, 
And so, uh, yeah, we're just going to transition into a time of ministry time. And during this time, um, the invitation is to come forward and to ask God, where, <laughs> where in my life is, is this not being fulfilled? Like, what, where are you shaping me and molding me in the way of love again to make music? In my community, in my family, in my own life, in my relationship with you? Um, because you can feel right now where it's just like law and music theory, and it's not a symphony. Um, and so the invitation is for you to open that up to the Holy Spirit.